you know, we don't, us three here, kid ourselves that we're leaders on the left. We're not, you know, we're, we're, we're marginals. We're, we're just marginals. That's all we are. And I know you like, you, you, you get him on the telly now and again, Ashley, but we're, we're still marginalised. We we're still, we're not the big leaders in the, of the pack. We never will be because we ask awkward questions and we ask them to do things and we ask them to, to, to learn and to to um, further their knowledge about important matters and they just won't because it, it's it, it's so easy to sort of shout fascist at everyone or, 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 to, or to become an activist and, and, and support some cultural group over, over the, the rights of one group over the rights of another. You've got this terrible argument between the radical feminists and the trans, uh, you know, um, supporters of the merchants. Oh, you know, this. Well, what, this, is, this is awful. This has completely got nothing to do with the lives of the majority of the people living in, uh, across the Western world. I'm a professor of social science at Northumbria University. Um, man of the people. Um, former professor of social science, um, a professor emeritus, um, whatever that means, uh, and um, happily retired uh, man of the people, but I'm sure the people don't really care. So, but so you know, here I am. Well, I wanted to talk to you mostly about the book, The Death of the Left. And I was wondering, how did you come to work together on this? We got back a very long way. We, we started researching together in 1998. Uh, looking at um, what was then called the nighttime economy. And we looked at issues uh, such as masculinity, violence, policing, and, 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 uh, uh, and the, the state of play in, in, in consumer culture at the time. We started writing a lot about consumer culture um, and shifted gradually into out-and-out political writing um, uh, around about 2012, 2013, when we um, really... Uh, this is what we were from the beginning, but at the time we were earning a living as researchers and, and we're researching specific issues. Uh, but all this underlying political frustration had been with us for a long time because we're from the northeast of England. And we saw deindustrialization um, firsthand. We ex experienced that, our families experienced that. And we saw the decline of working class politics and working class representation in politics. I don't think there's a single... Um, horny-handed son of toil currently sitting on the front bench of the Labour Party or perhaps anywhere on the, uh, uh, in, in, in the Labour um, Parliament, Labour side of the Parliament. So we saw all of this, uh, so that politics was always there and we always wanted to write about it and we started writing about it over 10 years ago and, uh, and we've suffered ever since uh, from, uh, you know, uh, rather harsh critique, uh, but we take it on the chin and carry on. I think the other thing to say is that uh... We would have preferred not to write this book because we are long-standing leftists. Uh, from me, for, for me, going back to my mid-teenage years, uh, I've been a denizen of the left, and Steve has been more actively involved in left politics than, than I have. But, um, you know, we were committed to the left, and so often you go along with these things, and then, you, you know, direct, where that old injunction that you should direct your critique at the right uh, you know, all those kind of uh, subtle ways of trying to curb critique of the left. Um, and we kind of bit our lips for a very long time, especially in, you know, when discussing the kind of more theoretical aspects of the left's failure. And, uh, you know, we didn't want to write this one. We knew we were going to get a lot of criticism, but 
for us to look at the current state of politics in the West, um, anyone invested in the well-being of ordinary people has to see what's happening out there in the real world as a, nothing short of a tragedy. Massive decline in living standards, uh, increasingly disorganised inner cities, the built environment is breaking down, our transport systems are in a disarray, housing is a massive concern for even socially included working couples now looking to start a family, that kind of thing. So, you know, these things require a, a kind of political investment. Uh, and now is the time for the left to become something else because we're sick of the left losing and we wanted to win. We want the left to help these people and to create a better world for everybody. And I, we can't see any sign of that happening anytime soon. So we thought we'd, uh, you know, let the chips fall where they may and say our piece. And uh, that was the real motivation for putting pen to paper on this book. Was there an event, a breaking point that just made you think, I, oh, I can't shut up anymore. I'm going to just take it on the chin. <laughs> Well, a number of them, I think. I mean, a Simon can speak for himself, but for me, and from quite a young age, I started to distrust the left quite, quite early in the 1970s. I remember moving I'm from a traditional working class background, mining village in County Durham, one of, one of the, uh, the country's largest coal fields at the time. And, you know, I have to admit, I had some traditional views about family, looking after children and families and, and, and making sure the next generation has, has some sort of security, all of that sort of stuff. And moving into the big city, I remember, because I was a musician at the time, moving into the big city and meeting the left uh, was a horrifying experience for me because I, I, I suddenly realised they hated me. And, 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 and confronting people who, who you thought were, you know, your allies who were going to help you through a particularly rough period of economic history where, you know, we've had re recession since 1973, since the OPEC oil shock. shock. We've had mass unemployment after the, the neoliberals took office in 1979. And I thought, you know, well, we need some allies. We need to sort of, I was a very quite keen, but, but you know, I had a lot of reservations about Tony Benn's plan for refurbishing the British economy at the time. I thought it was serious problems, but this is the sort of thing we need to be talking about. They weren't interested in any of that. They weren't interested in us. They weren't interested in our lives, in our communities, in our future, in our children. They were interested, they were interested in their own personal interests, which revolved around, a lot of it revolved around sexuality. A lot of it revolved around what I, I thought were was quite sort of hedonistic lifestyles, you know. They wanted to, it, was, it seemed to me entirely destructive. They wanted to destroy everything. And I started reading, uh, you know, a lot at the, at the time. I, I wasn't an academic, I didn't become an academic until 1988. And I started reading a lot at the time about the post-structuralist moves after the, the, the 1968 troubles in France and how the left-wing politics shifted. And for me, I mean, that, 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 that shift was a huge tectonic move. Um, after, you know, 1968, when the old French Maoists and, uh, and uh, neo-Marxists, you know, Pierre Victor and all the rest of them moved out into the 
the Renault factories and the farms try to persuade the workers to uh, join in the what they thought was a revolution, which is like a, a minor protest, really, a bit like Prigozhin's moving to Russia the other day. It was just it was over before anyone really had time to analyze it properly. Um, and and, and they, they didn't like the French working class. They hated them. Drunken Catholics, traditional people who you... really should be consigned to the, 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 the dustbin of history to make way for our beautiful, brave new world, full of floating creatures who, who simply float off in, 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 into space and, and, and do exactly what they want. And from that point uh, uh, onwards, I discovered that, that me, uh, Simon, and the rest of the working class, I don't know if you still regard yourself in that group, actually, the rest of the working class uh, at the time are no longer the agent of history. In fact, we're no longer uh, welcome in, in, in the world. So that was a, a huge um, shock to me in the early 1980s. And I've been thinking about writing ever since, but uh, being a bit of a coward at the time, I kept my nose clean and nosed my way into academia by keeping a little bit quiet about all of that. And eventually we got the chance and the position to write about it when we came together. So we just, uh, Simon said, let the chips fall, we made <laughs> which went for it. We said, right, okay, this is our chance to get into the ring and, and, and really throw a few punches. So, so we did. You said that um, they hated you. And now you did mention the sort of French left and so on, but did was there were there particular groups in the UK that you kind of had run-ins with? And was there a moment where you felt like a moment of realization that this was not for you? <laughs> Actors. A theatre group. As a musician, you see, I was employed by these people, you know, and, and um, well, particularly, um, well, of course, you know, actors, if you look, you know, from Sophocles onwards, actors, were, you know, have this ideological function of, 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 of you know, of, of telling the rest of us what the future should be, you know, and telling the rest of us how we're going to behave at, at, some, at some point, behave now in order to forge a, a certain type of future. And just generally the urban left, which was which had sort of adopted post-structuralist um, ideas and, and was sort of living them out. And um, I was never one for, for weed, you know, and, and, and cocaine and all of this. And I couldn't believe how, what they were throwing down their, their necks. I didn't, you know, I was all right, the odd split, all musicians are occasional split. But what they were throwing down their necks and, and this is sort of chaotic lifestyles that they were celebrating was, was just a complete shock to me, you know? And some of them were just so dirty. Their houses were so dirty. I, I couldn't believe it. Their flats were so, they never cleaned anything up, you know? I remember a, 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 a friend of mine who became, uh, you know, who, who also um, rejected the left saying, well, I got rid of this girlfriend who was a, a, a Judith Butler sort of um, post-structuralist and, and she left and she, he said, that's wonderful. I like, gave me a chance to clean the hat, to clean the flat up, you know, when she went, you know, it was great. And I started living like a normal human human being. And of course, the dirt bag left, which is is now, you know, which which the um, you know, I'm not I'm not okay with all of these um, modern terms. I'm an old man, but I have heard of, 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 of that, you know, and that is just such anathema to ordinary people who who tend to keep. Like they keep the houses clean and then that's so they get the dog shit off the lawn in the garden so the kids can play on the slide and all of this sort of the, the working people are very practical the the, the 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 people i was brought up with and you know what actually i still love them i still love them 
for all their flaws and all their faults. Yeah, they've got some prejudicial attitudes. Yeah, we need to change some ways of thinking, but I still love them, you see. And that's the difference between us and, and today's um, post-structuralist left. From my perspective, we, we've kind of been marginalised uh, within our academic dis disciplines because we've constantly pushed against convention, conventional ideas, theories and what have you. Uh, and academic life, as you know, Ashley, has become increasingly clannish. And if you're not in the clan, then, you know, the, you can be uh, stigmatised and chastised and criticised simply because you aren't pronouncing the right ideas. You're not offering up the, the, the right theorists. Uh, and of course, we were dismissed as, uh, you know, class reductionists, kind of. Marxist weirdos that just wanted to talk about economics and just wanted to talk about ordinary people uh, and weren't interested in uh, kind of, you know, the, the increasingly central discussion of cultural stigmatization. And so, you know, we, we neither of us, I guess, have been fully integrated into our disciplines throughout our academic careers. But the real tipping point is, uh, for me at least, uh, the reception of our last book, which was about uh, right-wing nationalism and its connection to downwardly mobile ex-working class communities in the industrialised North. And we, I guess, well, I don't think we offered them any kind of sympathetic coverage whatsoever, but we were denounced by many of our disciplinary colleagues because it was suggested we'd given these people a platform to talk. Uh, and, you know, at that point... I think I just said we're never going to get any support here from liberal social scientists. And so, you know, we've, we've kind of become a little bit more strident in our criticism of the academic liberal left in particular. There's this idea generally that if you just sort of suppress ideas well enough, somehow, some way, the left will flourish and our ideas will take hold and, and there will be like peace and, <laughs> and prosperity, not even prosperity peace and safety in the world. Um, I, I don't know if you what if you see something different underlying that kind of impulse to just to mm -hmm. attack the right, not give them a platform, minimize them, as opposed to having any kind of development on our side, but also debate. Well, of course, Freud was Freud himself, wasn't he? He said that what is repressed will return. It will always return. And it will return in, in, in ways that you can't control. Um, and we're seeing now um, the, the uh, alternative for Deutschland. Um, just in the last couple of days, they've got their first proper seat, haven't they? And, and we're seeing this rise of right-wing nationalism. Um, I don't want to use the word populism because they, they use that as a uh, invective. You know, they use that as a, a, a scare term, and I don't find it too scary. I mean, populism and democracy are pretty much the same sort of thing if you if you if you look at them uh clearly and with a little bit of detail historically and so right-wing populism is rising all and this is the form it's it, it it's taking and 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 somehow the, the, they seem the, the 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 liberal left seem to think that there's some muse of fascism out there which is controlling people's uh, thoughts and, and and feelings and uh you know it's ever present it's historical um timeless muse of, of, of fascism it's, you know it's eternal and, and it's going to um it's going to get us which which sounds to me like paranoia but what they don't do what they'll never do is look at their own role in destroying 
the left uh, as a vehicle for working class representation and as something that can perform the sort of economic management that working class people need in order to rise them to give themselves a little bit of economic security which they all crave our researchers is quite unequivocal about that you know whether they, 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 they want some economic security they might want, want safety in every sort of um a, 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 a type of uh, you know activity they do they don't want they don't want total safety and security but they want economic security you want to know that you can pay the mortgage at the end of the month and all the rest of it and they're not in a position to give them that so that the left's own guilt and they won't look at themselves, they won't criticise themselves, they won't look at their own programmes, their own concepts, their own history and, 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 and criticise themselves. I remember once Simon and I put on a conference at the University of York and um, I made the mistake of criticising what was then a left-wing star sociologist um, about the notion of moral panic. And I think it's a weak notion because I think that the only people in a panic are the liberal left because they think that the the, the, the great unwashed are going to resort to grim authoritarianism because the tabloid newspapers tell them to, which to me is like it's a script from a Marvel comics movie. It's just, you know, ridiculously simplistic. Uh, so the only people that panic and always have been are, are the liberal left. So I, I question this idea. I mean, just enraged, turn on me. How dare you question? Look, whose side are you on? I, you know, we, we've got, we've worked all this out. We, we've been discussing this for years. How dare you question this? You know, we, uh, you're either on our side or you're on the other side. And I thought that was another moment, you know, when I thought, well, you know, this is, this is a group of people who are incapable of reflexivity and self-critique and you know, thinking about themselves and changing uh, uh, their ideas when they need to. So... There you have it. it, it it's, uh, you know, we're up against something that, that, that is enclosed. It's an enclosed bubble. And they will censor anything that um, challenges that, that, that enclosed bubble because they're so fragile that their whole worldview could fall to pieces if, if a few of those central concepts were, were removed. I think I think the, the the argument we make in the book is that the left has become non non dialectical in the sense that idealism has triumphed in any engagement with the material world, intellectual realism, philosophical realism, what what have you, has just ceased to exist, and the left is increasingly concerned with its abstract ideals rather than everyday issues that really count to ordinary people, and so it's really not making a, a lot of headway. It's redundant. It's spinning its wheels because it can't draw enough people towards its discourse because people are concerned with their material welfare. They're re concerned about the things that affect their lives. They're less concerned with the kinds of abstract ideals which the left concerns itself with, the intellectualized left and some parts of the, uh, you know, the, the major par uh, parties. They've drifted off from the real world to occupy this kind of uh, uh, sphere of kind of abstract ideals. And I think that's a, just a terrible mistake. That left was always worldly. Yeah. It was concerned with worldly issues. It was, it, it really got, socialism is really a, starts with the, a drive to affect, to affect, to change a, an unjust world, which was massively affecting predominant, the large part of the population. Uh, and that, those kinds of ideals are, you know, marginalised on the left at least. It's very difficult to get a hearing. 
unless you accept the ideal idealized discourse that is you know at the center of the left today absolutely i mean we, we're often accused of being nostalgic social democrats wanting to return to the new deal era and the, you know the happily bevan era of mixed market economy nationalization of industries uh, you know which is completely untrue but what we want to do is return the ability of, of, a, of, a, of a left capable of economic manage, management to have a few triumphs now and again. Because if you don't have a few triumphs now and again, people lose faith entirely. You have to be able to have some impact on the world, some incremental impact on the world. What the left did, the, the only successful time we've had in this country between 1945 and 19. 51. I wish people would stop talking about the 1960s. Nothing happened in the 1960s politically, though, you know, nothing at all. It was just uh, this silly American countercultural revolution that, that, that got us absolutely nowhere and actually helped to open the door for neoliberalism. And but that that period, when we did serious things, nationalization of industry, health service, state and related pensions, democratic representation, now that and was nowhere near perfect. We don't want to go back to that. We want to go forward to something better than that. But that was a better platform. It was so successful that the Tory government they got in 1951 because people are sick of austerity and the Tories promised to make everyone richer as usual uh, <laughs> and tell the, the pack of lies. But the Tory government were, were forced to continue those policies. There was nothing to do. They could do to get rid of them. They had to keep them. And, uh, you know, my family were miners uh, and they, they waxed lyrical about the better conditions in the nationalised industries. They could breathe underground. They weren't dying. Yeah? They were getting good pay. They were sinking huge ventilation shafts and they had steel pit props instead of wooden ones that cracked and, 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 and let the roof down on them. You know what I mean? And, and everything was getting incrementally better. Now, nowhere near where we want to go. And I'm sure nowhere near where you want to go. But this, we don't want to return to that, to stay there. We want to return to that platform because it was a platform on which we could have a few triumphs. The working people would say, okay, this lot are pretty good. Let's stick with them and let's keep going. But no, 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 that's not, that, that's not good enough. Uh, we have to have these ludicrous, ridiculous visions of a, of a beautiful future full of floating people. And if we don't, and if we don't, uh, you know, enthusiastically, uh, uh, commit ourselves to that, but, but then we, 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 we need to be thrown in the dustbin. So you mentioned how these ideals, abstract ideals that are just, you know, you use the words like, well, Simon, you, says, you say abstract ideals, but you've, um, Steve said, it's like floating people. But surely there are some ideals that people do care about and that matter. So for instance, freedom sure. is an abstract sure. ideal that seems to have a lot of purchase. On, yeah. on the part of working people. So is there, are there just the wrong sorts of ideals? Can you give a few examples? Well, it's interesting you, you mentioned uh, freedom. I think this is also a, a colleague of ours has suggested that we needed to pay closer attention to freedom. And obviously we re reject the suggestion that we don't deal with it adequately. I think very often on the left, the left's account, account of freedom is as hollow and meaningless as the account of freedom offered by the neoliberal right. Freedom has to take the individual somewhere. If we're flogging freedom to ordinary people, there has to be an endpoint. It's a vehicle to another destination. We're free to do something in order to do something else. We, we are given freedoms to achieve a thing, an outcome that is valuable and useful. In many cases, the, the predominant form of freedom 
that the left has advocated has been as negativistic as the kind of neoliberal right. We're going to take something away, you know, something we don't like. So you might say, well, an account of freedom might be the removal of free market capitalism and freedom is the result. But you have to tell a story about what that result would look like and how it would affect lives and why people should want it. You have to establish a system uh, that you 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 you're attempting to bring to fruition, rather than just you know throw. People say freedom, and I immediately you know want to want them to write a book about what they're talking about to take the discussion forward because. Uh, unless you're going to pin it down and say precisely what your freedom is and what it's enabling people to do, then it's just one of those phrases that people bandy around that doesn't really have any substantial meaning. So, you know, I think I'm, I'm all for freedom, but freedom in order to do valuable, socially useful things that enable people's life experience to improve. Yeah. And I think in many cases, what, you know, if we've done a lot of research, a lot of social research, especially in the north of England, and what people want isn't freedom. What they want, you know, on, on that spectrum there is security. They're far more interested in achieving a degree of security, which will act as a platform for better things. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely right. Uh, I think also, of course, that abstract ideas are timeless and they're context-free. Platonic ideas, freedom, justice, democracy, you know. I mean, George Bush was very good on his fame and democracy. Yeah, I kind of get fame and democracy. What, what, what did he mean? Well, for George, in, in this context of highly competitive um, neoliberal capitalism, I think as R.H. Tawney once said, um, freedom for the minnow is also freedom for the pike. It's freedom for the monopolist. It's freedom for, for you know, for, for, for the... Um, I don't want to go talking about bankers because I'm accused of being a conspiracy theorist again, you know, but freedom for people to simply acquire massive property rights and um, lord it over the rest of us. I think Bill Gates, what's the percentage of American farmland that Gates is, is, is currently um, bought up? Bill Gates has been snatching up 242,000 acres of farmland across the U.S., enough to make him the top private farmland owner in America. According to the Land Report, the tech billionaire has been purchasing agricultural land for years, building a massive portfolio of farmland in 18 states. His largest holdings are more than 69,000 acres in Louisiana, almost 48,000 acres in Arkansas, and about 20,500 acres in Nebraska. Additionally, he has a stake in 25,750 acres of traditional land in Phoenix, Arizona, which is being developed as a new suburb. It's not clear how Gates' farmland is being used. This is all about control versus freedom. It's, it's good versus evil. It is a spiritual battle. This is freedom. This is not the freedom in this context. We also want we all want freedom from the dull compulsions of, of, of capitalism, the old Marxist notion of freedom, you know, the dream of the old man where you fish in the afternoon. The German Ideology by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Page 53. And finally, the division of labor offers us the first example of the fact that, as long as man remains in naturally evolved society, 
that is, as long as a cleavage exists between the particular and the common interest, as long, therefore, as activity is not voluntary, but naturally divided, man's own deed becomes an alien power opposed to him, which enslaves him instead of being controlled by him. For as soon as the division of labor comes into being, each man has a particular exclusive sphere of activity, which is forced upon him and from which he cannot escape. He is a hunter, a fisherman, a shepherd, or a critical critic, and must remain so if he does not want to lose his means of livelihood. Whereas in communist society, where nobody has one exclusive sphere of activity, but each can become accomplished in any branch he wishes, society regulates the general production, and thus makes it possible for me to do one thing today and another tomorrow, to hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, rear cattle in the evening, criticize after dinner, just as I have a mind, without ever becoming hunter, fisherman, shepherd, or critic. And, and I still agree with a lot of that. Don't, I'm not dismissing it. Don't, don't get me wrong. You know, it's like, you know, the, the idea of the falling rate of profit is still a very powerful idea of the labor theory of value doesn't fly. So we have to be selective about what we take. Uh, but this idea of freedom is, 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 is a timeless, abstract, context free. It's ahistorical, you know. And, and we need to know what that Steinman says, what freedom means to us now. What sort of freedom? Where do we start? What sort of freedoms do we start with? How can we build up? some sort of uh, build up an itinerary of, of, of freedoms that will move us closer to whatever the abstract ideal is. Well, what is the abstract ideal, actually? Let's ask you a question. What, 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 what is that? What is this dream of freedom? What, what, what does it mean? Well, the odd thing is that I actually have a much more negative, I, I think of it as a much more negative view of freedom yeah. um, in that I am suspicious of, of when people always need to build these abstract ideals with content. So obviously my first book was about happiness, which happy, happiness was a floating signifier, right? A vague reference towards something good, right? Yeah. And then people come and they start trying to fill it with content because I argued there's a fear that people will get it wrong and they'll do the yeah. wrong thing. And so it has to be stipulated in advance. So yeah. I, that this makes me kind of suspicious of anyone who wants to say, well, hold on a second. What does freedom really mean? We don't mean like freedom to smoke, right? We don't mean freedom to just do whatever you want willy-nilly. Oh, that's sure. that's dangerous. That's risky, right? So I think some of the, the um, I don't know, suspicion of these grand ideals is a suspicion of people's ability to live in them and to, f to live in them in a negative kind of way, to pursue them in whatever way they feel they want, which is what I how I read that line from the German ideology that you mentioned. Fish in the afternoon. I'm pretty sure you're fishing. Do you work in the morning? So you're not the time free. Uh, That's um, right. The realm of necessity will always be with us. Right? With, but it won't, yeah, yeah. So but it won't dictate half, who we are. Agra. You're on half shift. That, that's fine. Half yeah. shift's better than nothing. Yeah. You're on half so shift. We... Then you go into fish in the afternoon and then you philosophize in the evening. So he was being prescriptive. I mean, people. Well, yeah, yeah, without having to be any of these things. The idea yeah. was that it would no longer sure. determine your existence. That so you that's the negative idea of freedom put forward by right wing liberals such as Isaiah Berlin, who could distinguish mm -hmm. between positive and negative freedom. Uh, the problem with that is, and I don't disagree with you, that, 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 that we should leave people a space. 
you know, it was John Stuart Mill's space, wasn't it? This sort of boundary, he put a boundary around it, but no one knew what the boundary was or where it was, that it should be established by the rule of law, because of course he was a, I can't remember now, an act utilitarian or something, he was a rule utilitarian, he established this, this boundary by the rule of law, and, and then the spaces in it to do what every, every, anyone wants. That's that's great. The negative aspect of freedom that, that you're proposing should, should not be ignored, and I totally agree with it. But what are the boundaries? And what do some people do different things with that freedom? Like Tawny said, the pike does different things with that freedom than the minnow does. So what can the minnow do to um, prevent the pike's outcomes of, of his freedom? Uh, what, what, you know, this seems like a constant battle. There's a constant battle going on in that space of negative freedom, and, and I really don't know who's going to win it. It seems as though the people we don't want to win are doing very well at the moment, uh, the monopolists and the property acquirers. It's a very good book by, I think it's, oh my, sorry, my old brain, but I think it's Brett Christopher called um, Asset Management Society, where the whole of of the, the world, including Ukraine after the war, because uh, Larry Fink's over there already um, with Zelensky talking about how they're going to carve up the Ukrainian farmland and, 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 and Monsanto and BlackRock. Are all. How do we stop these outcomes of freedom? How, how do we do anything about that without interfering with the system that promotes that sort of freedom? That's my, that's my question. And don't, I haven't got a, a, a ready answer for that. But if, if we don't address that, I think that the... Um, idea of negative freedom, which goes back well before Berlin. I mean, Berlin never had an original idea of his life. It goes back towards Socrates. To Socrates. If we don't do something, if we don't make it clear about what that freedom means for people, and then we, 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 then we proclaim a, a free society, and then nasty things happen, then we're going to tarnish the name of freedom simply by our neglect. And that's what I worry about. Uh, and and I, I, I worry that that entirely, um, you know, promoting negative freedom might backfire. You know, you've got to have a space for, for freedom, but especially in democratic context, it's a difficult sell. You know, we're going to bring freedom. We're running on a freedom ticket. It's uh, I mean, you must you must admit, actually, that these are fairly hollow sounding uh, promises to people who are, you know, seeing a, a massive historic decline in their material standards of living. So. I think it's just to add some substance there, add some clarity so that we can actually begin to, you know, begin to talk about how can we can positively affect the lives of ordinary people. Well, I tend to think economic security isn't valued in and of itself, but for the freedom that it gives. Right. So I remember that when I had no money, still don't have a lot of money, but like, like really, really no money, nothing like everything was so difficult. Every single thing was fucking difficult. Like it was, it was so frustrating because you couldn't do anything. You're just utterly trapped. And economic security gives you these all these freedoms. That's why people desire it, right? right. Um, so, and I think that's that's part of what's contained in that word when people talk about how they want freedom. They mean like they don't want to have to keep working for the man or whatever. They don't want to yeah. have to, you know. So I think that's kind of bound up in it. Um, and of course, when I say like freedom is an empty signifier, or when you say that freedom is an empty signifier, of course it is within the context of capitalism, right? Um, because it's 
becomes it's it's not empty it, it appears empty but it's not so when i say freedom you might be thinking ah yes my security to do what i want and go on holiday and not have to work for the man if i don't want to but when someone says it what they really mean is my freedom to um you know i don't know exploit without <laughs> without any limitation uh, my freedom solely in the sphere of buying and selling and not your freedom to dictate what happens in economics. No, no, no. Your freedom to vote every four. You know, it's, it's, it's always stipulated in advance. And of course, when I think of negative freedom, I mean, removing these barriers that mean that you're free to sell your capital, sell your labor to whatever capitalists will buy it. You're not free to not do that. Right. Like you will truly be free to as far as the realm of necessity allows. That is, you will always have to work a certain amount just to reproduce our existence, but to be free to do whatever you want after that without it dictating who you are and what you become and what you do every day nine to five or sure. five to, to mm -hmm. two in the morning or whatever it might be in your precarious existence sure but i mean I would go for the philosophical sorry. sorry i was just going to say i'd go for the physical philosophical tangent and suggest that labor is actually integral to subjective western subjectivities at the moment i think uh in terms of you know happiness and contentment when we put our energies to a cause that's when we uh, are working at our you know peak the peak of human existence and i think the pro problems arise when the left offers accounts of liberty that just involve the absence of all commitments and obligations and forms of labor the absence of these things just suggest on we you know like uh, you know we're sitting around in luxury just slowly decaying and nothing really counts nothing really matters as long as we're free to determine how what we eat what drugs we take what we do with our time and i think especially now that labor should be integral not freedom but labor should be integral to a new account of forward moving left we build things we do things we apply our efforts and we do it communally together to a common purpose because there's so much labor and I mean, this is a, have a gripe about UBI and things like that. There's so much that needs to be done. People need labor. We in Britain at the moment need a huge amount of labor. If I look at my, my window, everything seems to be decaying. We need ordinary people to be involved in these processes. And I think this is one strategy that could have left, could allow the left to succeed and uh, kind of reconnect with working class voters. Yes, and I think the modern monetary theorists don't suggest a rather than UBI a job guarantee program that anyone wants to have a job and contribute to communal well-being should have a job at the, at the average national wage. And that would give people the security to do all of the things that other things they want to in, in their free time. It wouldn't be an onerous job. It would, it would be a, a normal working week. And trade unions um, <laughs> lobbied for decades to get our weekends and, and get to finish at four or five o'clock and you know um of course uh and, and, and this works so that that's another way there's a dispute between those who believe in ubi and those who suggested job guarantee but these are the sort of practical steps that we're talking about that the left could take to say well look look the balance of the freedom actually is talking about the negative freedom which we're not dismissing at all and the sort of positive security that that actually gives that negative freedom some meaning you know that you need something you need to stand on a platform i mean you can be free and walk off a cliff you've never been more free in your life but you're going to fall down and and and, and break your body and uh, it, it, it's you know to look at freedom in that, in that pure abstract way uh, i think makes people nervous 
and it makes them think that things are going to fall apart and they're going to fall down and, 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 and hurt themselves. So we have to be very careful when we're trying to sell negative freedom. If it's not couched in some sort of on, on some sort of you know positive platform, that, that, that then and this was the argument in the 1950s, and this was the argument. And you know, I, I think I'm, I'm being a little unkind to Isaiah with Berlin because he did talk about the relationship between positive and negative freedom in a more sophisticated way. But of course, he came down on the side of negative freedom um, because they wanted to the the, the <laughs> the, the fledgling neoliberals in the 1950s wanted to get rid of the, 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 the government um, control that, 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 that had been establishing themselves in the New Deal and, and, and the, you know, the British Labour Party. And throughout Europe, I mean, I remember people like Billy Brandt and, you know, were, this was a fairly firm government control over a mixed market economy. And it tended to sort of work. And I, it wasn't perfect. It, 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 it melded um, positive and negative freedom together reasonably sort of well. You know, there were still old cultural traditions and prejudices and bigotry that we needed to get rid of. But during that period, if you look at the 1970s, for instance, the Race Relations Act and, 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 and the, the, the decriminalization of homosexuality, that was a better context in which to start to, the, the process of getting rid of that bigotry. Now, of course, we have a culture war. We don't, yeah, we don't have a, 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 any solidarity. We don't have any a unified approach to these issues. We simply have culture wars, which are incredibly destructive. People falling out, and you know, well, you, you know what Twitter's like, and on social media, it's horrific. Uh, and and there's no, there's no chance of any solidarity when when you're in, enmeshed in a post-structuralist culture war, a conspiracy theorist in me, it's not, 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 not entirely in control of my consciousness, I must have hastened the one that would say that, you know, that the intelligence services promoted post-structuralism after 1971. Uh, they didn't, they did, you know, they don't pull strings, we're not, we're not just dupes, but they actually, through the Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, funded research into post-structuralism and, and, and identity politics, because it was a nice way of leaving class and the economy pillaging. But I don't want to go too far because you know you get yourself back the worst name already out. <clears throat> but um, I think it's true that that that, that um, post-structuralism and their idea of uh, untrammeled negative freedom was very good for neoliberalism, and the Pikes came came through the door, and they started to um, amass their monopoly property rights. And the huge property rights they have now. I mean, they can't even. I've just resigned from my dentist. I'm not. I'm not paying you fifteen pounds a month because it's going to an asset manager in a company in a an equity company in London and lining the pockets, uh, uh, which is based in Dallas, Texas. Uh, so the equity company. I'm not giving money to people to getting out of the country and going to Dallas, Texas. I'm not doing it anymore. So I signed up on an NHS agreement. Uh, and and, and it, this this web of uh, of monopoly uh, ownership of, of property and, and acquisition and, and, and equity is it, something that is a product of this total negative freedom in the context of a competitive market society. And so we have to be just a little bit circumspect about it. Yeah, I mean, that. you can have like freedom within the markets, right? Only in a context in which everything else is narrowly circumscribed. Like that's impossible. impossible. When everything else yeah. is impossible, yeah. it's beyond the boat. Yeah. You have yeah, to play because... the market, otherwise you don't survive. Yeah. Yeah. And for the for the post-structuralists, <laughs> this is something that Foucault argues as well. You know, he's a bit ambivalent about whether or not this is a good or a bad thing, but you know, the, the market was this sort of like, you know, externally fragile if, you know, 
internally robust kind of system that needs needed careful management on the outside. So paradoxically, in order for this freedom to reign, we can't really have any freedom. Like you can't have freedom to dictate or, or vote on anything that really matters in life. This all gets, this is all just technocratic stuff that people who know better will deal with. And you can, you know, maybe we'll have a, a debate about gender, maybe we'll have a de debate about culture and bigotry and so on, but you keep your hands off the economy and oh, keep your hands okay. off this and don't do that. And for your own safety, you know, the realm of freedom gets smaller and smaller is, is more what I'm trying to get at. Absolutely, and this goes back to the French physiocrats and, and, and the early early classical liberals. It's not just a, something the neoliberals invented. The separation of the economy from all political and cultural life just let it go. You know, let the, the physiocrats invented the term laissez-faire. Uh, let, let the economy move along under its own um, logic and uh, uh, you know uh, uh, its, its own dynamics and just leave it alone. And that, that will benefit everyone. Well, that's, of course, it's total nonsense. It has to be bailed out every every time with quantitative easing, you know, every 10 years or so. It's just total rubbish. And we wouldn't yeah. believe this sort of stuff, um, that, that this is the, you know, the ultimate, leave this thing free. And this is another negative free. This is the ultimate negative freedom, isn't it? Let's say, let the economy work. Let this clockwork thing work and underneath us and, 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 and uh, benefit us all. It was Mandeville's fable of the bees, wasn't it? There was what was it? Was it private vice shall be turned into public virtue? He said, "All right, all right. Oh, thanks, Bernard. Thanks for that one." Uh, and it's of course completely all rubbish. I mean, philosophers do talk largely rubbish, you know. And that, 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 that's a, another issue that we have. They're free to do that, of course, uh, but we're also free to ignore um, most of what the, the philosophers say <clears throat> um, and pick out the good bits. So we're in this position where we have the outcomes of negative freedom and, as you say, the logic of a competitive capitalist company. That's where we are. And that's that. we have no one else to blame but ourselves for landing ourselves in this position. Um, uh, Peter Turkin, I don't know if you've read Ed Science, talks about a counter-elite, a counter-elite which tends to take over the left, becomes the left mouthpiece. And, you know, it goes back a very long time, right across the, right across the world, the Taiping Revolution, uh, Rebellion in, in, in China, the, the French Revolution. But working people have never really been represented by the left, not properly. And it was only after the Second World War when we did actually get a few working class representatives through, in both in, in the USA and, and in Europe, through to um, uh, the uh, parliamentary systems, uh, uh, that things started to change a little bit in our direction. And then uh, 7980, that was, that was all thrown out and, and here we are. <laughs> well, you've kind of anticipated my, my next question, oh, which is uh, that, um, so you're talking about the death of the left. Um, now, I was going to say which left has died, but when uh, your book initially came out and I wrote an endorsement for it and you had posted sort of on Twitter, uh, one of the criticisms that came up was, oh, calling again the death of the left. Um, can we just stop doing this? So what, would, what do you say to that, to that kind of criticism? You know, right wing now is a slur, you know, it, it, to be called right wing is something that people don't want. They, oh no, I'm not a right winger. And any kind of criticism is sort of couched in this careful kind of language. So can we really say that the, in what ways can we say that the left is dead? And are we not just doing this too much, declaring the death of things? Yeah, I think there's a, you know, that that's a fair point. I think from our perspective, we've worked very hard to keep the idea of the, the, the left alive. 
and we've said things are fine when actually they're not fine and they're said we're moving forward when actually we're regressing i think we've moved out away from the you know the lives certainly in britain where the places i know best we've retreated from the lives of ordinary people we feel the, the left is disconnected from the issues that really matter to ordinary people uh, we're elect electorally insignificant unless you're going to throw in the mainstream neoliberals, you know, Starmer's Labour Party and whatever else. We're having very little effect upon the world. We've had increasingly, uh, you know, less, less and less effect upon the world these last few decades. And, you know, it's easy for us, uh, you know, concerned with abstract matters. Uh, you know, I'm sure we all read a lot. Uh, we're concerned with theoretically what the left should be and where it might go but in the ordinary world the, the real world where we have virtually no impact upon the fundamentals that shape everyday life and i think how the declaration you know that the left is dead is simply an acknowledgement of the fact that it's no longer moving forward productively as i said the kind of idealism is taken over and replaced any concern with material issues with real world issues but i can't see anything productive happening that will take the world take the left back to the real world and 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 have it affect the lives of ordinary people uh, but i mean you know to address your point again from a different direction i guess my point is that what our book does is we're charting that story of disintegration we're charting here is the left that started off, it was full of vigour, it wanted to do good things, it was successful in some, some respects, it began to move forward, and then all kinds of internal problems arise and it moves off track, forgets its founding uh, uh, commitments, and gradually uh, dies, it comes to an end in our conception of what the left should be, dies. But yeah. we hope, you know, we hope that it can re be reborn. It's yeah. not dead and it's never coming back. Death opens up the opportunity for a rebirth. And I think this is the point. This is the, the fundamental point we want to get to in the book is... The